Ave listeners, a quick update on Caesar's Gallic War, a new podcast series we're currently crowdfunding on Kickstarter. It has passed its funding goal, so thank you to everyone who has supported it, and there's now coffee mugs available with art by Rich Morris, featuring a rather burly Gallic warrior facing off with Caesar. So if you want to get a podcast series exclusive to supporters only, look for links on social media or head to Kickstarter and search for Caesar's Gallic War. And thanks. Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. This is Episode C, The Death of Caesar. That's right, after four and a half years of bringing you classics in handy podcast interview format, we reach our 100th episode. And what better way to do that with a well-placed dagger in the back of Julius Caesar himself? This episode was recorded at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, Australia, on the 2nd of August, 2018. The show was supported by the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. Here's me. Friends, Romans, countrymen, we are gathered here this evening for the 100th episode of The Emperors of Rome. It is my honour, nay, my privilege, nay, my pleasure to introduce my co-host this evening. She is a scholar trained by scholars. I first met her in the Forum of Rome itself, praying to the goddess Bologna to guide her hands to the lost tomes of Tacitus. I give you the seeker of Suetonius, the legacy of Livy. It is Dr. Rhiannon Evans. Shall I footnote things just slightly to catch everyone up who don't realise who Gaius Julius Caesar is? He comes back from Gaul, goes in, has his triumphs, has a bit of a civil war, becomes dictator. We all on the same page. And uh, what year should we be going to? 44 BCE. 44 BCE. Okay. And what powers, well, what honours is Julius Caesar given by the Senate? Well, I guess we should start with dictator, which some people might think uh, that we're using the sort of modern context for that word, but it is an official Roman Republican role. So the fact that Caesar has it several times, and it's meant to be a role for crisis, so that works for civil war, the civil war between... Um, 49 and 45. Um, But Caesar gets it, I think it's quite telling, he gets it the first time for 11 days. That's okay, because it's meant to be six months max. Then he gets it for an increasing amount of time for a year. Then he gets it for a series of years. Then he gets it forever. (laughs) So that's one of the things that he gets in 44. Um, He's also consul for the third time in a row, and technically you're meant to have 10 years between consulships. That has not always been observed, but as well as getting the consulship of 45 on his own, and there's meant to be two, and the consulship of 44, he's now got it for the next 10 years. So not only has he got magistracies, but he's got them locked in for the future. So a little game you can play is uh, to think, what would have happened if Caesar hadn't been assassinated? Is that a spoiler? Um, in 44, uh, that he would have been consul for the next 10 years. And 
kept the dictatorship. He could have done anything he wanted. Is that literally a game that you play? <laughs> Life in my house is so much fun, <laughs> as you can guess. I think, well, you know, there's so many alternative histories for the, if the Nazis had won the war, where are the alternative histories for the, where if Caesar hadn't been murdered? Mm. Just asking. Okay. And uh, he also gets perks like uh, he gets to wear purple all the time. So things like that. Just a simple thing that every dictator should have. Good fashion sense. Yeah. And basically it's triumphal gear all the time, which is not only like wearing your best party dress every day. It actually is a sign that you are as close to the gods as you can get when you are the triumphant general. That means that you are almost the equivalent of a god for a day. And, you know, there's a famous, you have to be reminded that you're not. Um, with a slave telling you you're mortal. So he's, he's really pushing the boundaries, not only of the Republican Constitution, which is sort of in a, a bit of a mess and not happening at this stage, but also the boundaries of what it is to be human versus what it is to be God. And, of course, in the back of people's minds are, is he trying to be a king? Matt refused to wear <laughs> laurel wreath come crown, but I brought it anyway. Put it on. <laughs> Maybe later. So... He also, uh, rather interestingly, gets the Senate to swear an oath, which, uh, t tell us about this oath. This is, this is a bit unprecedented, I think, isn't it? Uh, yes, so he, he gets them to swear an oath that, bas that basically means he can do what he wants because that they will not contradict him, that they will not stand in his way. That they will maintain his safety. Yes, and of course that's ironic given what does happen to him because he will die at the hands of senators. And that suggests that he is worried about this at that point because uh, even if you read the biographies of Caesar, you might get the impression that this is a conspiracy that happens within a, you know, people get very impatient and we'll talk about the events of the last few months before his death that seem to really hasten this. But it's probably been a feeling for a while that Caesar's exceeding the amount of power you should have. So it's quite likely that he might have, might have sensed that there was potential for an uprising against him. All right, so that's the powers that Caesar now has uh, in charge as dictator of Rome. So who are the other main players in this? Uh, let's just quickly name them off so people are familiar with them. We'll start with... Uh, on Caesar's side, we've got Mark Antony, Marcus Antonius, for those of us who are not Shakespeare inclined. Uh, yes, so Marcus Antonius has been Caesar's kind of companion, right-hand man, warrior through the civil wars. Um, he holds important uh, magistracies, and we do think of him as Caesar's right-hand man. As we'll see, there's potentially, at times they weren't close. At times, Antony was somewhat in, in the shadows and in disgrace even. So although it looks like a very close friendship, part of that is with the benefit of hindsight, where Antony went after the people who'd killed Caesar. So there's sort of a bit of tension potentially, and if you played that game that Caesar lives, then maybe they would have come to blows. And uh, also on the side of Caesar, who doesn't get a lot of mention tonight, I suppose, is... Uh, and here is the traditional Matt stuffing up a Latin name, Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. Lepidus. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Okay. All right. I'm glad I didn't ruin a fine tradition of 100 episodes stuffing yeah. up Latin names. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, um, Lepidus is going to become potentially more important because along with Caesar's heir, he will be part of that gang of three, the triumvirate. 
Um, but even within that gang, he's, he's always seen as the third wheel, the, the lesser of them. Uh, but he is somebody who's sort of been a stalwart with Caesar. So he, he's, he's an obvious person to carry on the tradition of being in Caesar's gang after Caesar's murdered and help to look after Caesar's heir, Octavian. Okay, and, oh, well, there we go, Octavius. Yeah, Octavius at this point. Well, well done, because he is Octavius at this point. He only becomes Octavian when that happens, when Caesar's murdered, and he's adopted by Caesar in his will. So he gets to na change his name a lot of times, and a lot of you will know that he changes it again to Augustus. So he is he's only 19 when these events happen, but he will be the real success story out of this, and kind of the beneficiary of it in a lot of ways, because he uses this event to the utmost. He uses it for propagandist purposes. All right, a few of the people in uh, opposition, well, Brutus. Uh, can, Brutus and Cassius, let's let's lump them together a bit because oh no, okay, let's. No, 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 I saw that look. <laughs> yeah. I, I've been on the receiving end of that look for many a podcast. Let's start with Brutus, shall we? <laughs> so Marcus Junius Brutus. Um, and no, we can we can talk about Cassius as well because they were both on the wrong side in the civil war. That's what I was inferring to. Yeah. But, yeah. but but they are very much their own people. <laughs> um, and Caesar has forgiven them basically. Uh, many would say that the, the whole forgiveness, the mercy that Caesar displays is a mistake um, because they will be... A Caesar would probably agree with you in <laughs> retrospect. We could get through to him. Uh, yes, so they have, they've been on Pompey's side in the civil wars, uh, but they are also, of course, they're senators and uh, Brutus in particular is potentially close to Caesar because there is a rumour that he is Caesar's illegitimate son. So they're, they're two important figures in this. But again, their allegiances aren't as easy to, because you know the outcome and that they were conspirators, you think automatically that they were always on the opposite side. But there is this connection between Caesar and Brutus, at least. Mm, and there was also... The, uh, the fact, the, the widely promoted fact in those times that Brutus was descendant of the, last, of the man who killed the last king of Rome. Who, who drove out the kings of Rome. He didn't, yeah. he didn't kill him? No. Okay. No. That would have but, been a better story. <laughs> sorry, we can't. Um, it's probably mythical history anyway, but we can't change it at this point. Yeah, Brutus has the same name as the man who was supposed to have driven out the kings after they had become excessively tyrannical uh, back in the 6th century BCE. And he's the one who swore that there would never be another king in Rome. So if the, the Brutus of Caesar's time is really descended from him, and he very much uses that in his propaganda, then he can claim descent from someone who had driven off tyrants. And this means he, it might be his sacred duty, his family duty, to rid the world of the tyrant that some perceive Caesar as becoming. Decimus. Yeah, often underrepresented in many tellings of this story. Pretty much written out of Shakespeare. Well... Uh, and that's kind of There's why. a character called Decius, and yeah. there's a theory that that's Shakespeare getting it wrong. That's essentially being written out, though. <laughs> well, no, he, he might just have written it down wrongly. Um, so, yeah, Decimus Brutus is part of this conspiracy, too, and is closely aligned, obviously, with, uh, with brother Brutus. So he's, he's sort of the hidden part of this that we don't commemorate afterwards, but he will, he will be another spoiler, killed off very quickly afterwards. But so none he, of these people is going to fare well. But he was very close to Caesar. He was fighting with him in Gaul. Uh, he was a close 
general? Um, yes, so we, we have this, this pattern of people who may have been on the other side in the Civil War. They may have been with him in Gaul, um, for example, Trebonius, who mm. would be a, a conspirator too. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're going to continue to back Caesar. All right, so we do have this situation where even those who have been loyal to him up until this point, some of them turn against Caesar, which suggests that a lot of people saw him as a problem at this point. And even the people, and for those of you who don't know, Caesar is generally seen as a populist, that he's somebody who had a lot of support from the people of Rome, that kind of third, the, you know, you've got the Senate and the people, so they're that other element. Um, but some of them are starting to write up graffiti and, and write up things like, oh, Brutus, you know, why aren't you here now to spare us from tyrants? And they're writing nasty things on Caesar's statues. So that support is starting to slip away, not just among the Senate and the people who've been on Caesar's side in Gaul and the civil wars, but also amongst the people of Rome. Finally, shout out to Cicero, who is not on the side of the people with the daggers and didn't know about it, but was there in the background. And he supported, definitely in the afterthought of um, the assassination of Julius Caesar. Well, he, he ends... Cicero's a difficult character, isn't he? he? He ends up going for the senatorial side in the Civil War, but after quite a lot of prevarication. And a, a lot of people... This sounds like it's trivialising it, but I have heard Cicero described as sort of the the not cool kid in the schoolyard. But he's, he's always on the senatorial side, but he doesn't get picked up by them for the, the assassination conspiracy. Mm. Um, and yes, afterwards he writes with a great deal of joy uh, in some of his letters about how he wishes he'd been there at that, what does he call it, that superb banquet. A superb banquet on the Ides of March. Yeah, yeah. To, to have been part of it, which suggests that he does really regret not being part of that group, part of that gang. And then he goes on at length to lament the fact that they didn't kill Mark Antony at the same time. Yeah, uh, well, Mark Antony will certainly turn out to be It's quite a long, enemy. nasty letter, that one. <laughs> he wrote I, a lot more against Antony. We, we could have a whole series on that. Now, we've got the characters, we've set the scene. Why aren't Rome more grateful at the fact that they've got such a benevolent dictator, <laughs> if we should call him that, in the visage of Gaius Julius Caesar? What, what is wrong with this? Well, Caesar's sort of putting a cap on something that's been happening for a while, which is that the institutions, and for the Romans this is really important, the customs of the Republic are being torn apart. It's been happening for quite a while. So, for example, Marius was consul successive times, but that was in a time of war, largely. Um, but Caesar's sort of making it more overt. He's making it more overt by doing things like wearing purple all the time. That might not seem like a big deal, but remember, it brings him close to the gods, technically. And also, we start to get these little events right towards the end of his life, mm. where he shows no respect for the Senate, and he seems to, to be courting uh, the people around him to declare him as a king or declare him as something above the system. So he's already really garnered these powers, but he wants the trappings of it as well, even more than he already has. All right, so there's, there's three events in particular that... So remember, he dies, dies Ides of March, March 44 BCE. So just a few months beforehand, the first one's in December 45 BCE, which is... That's where Caesar gets all of these honours dedicated to him. 
this is something where there are so many honours. It's, it's so laid on very thickly that you almost wonder whether the Senate isn't trying to trip him up. Um, and it's done in such a way that there's this big march, this big parade, we're told, that was, went to the temple of Venus the Mother, or the Venus Genetrix, which is in the Forum of Julius Caesar. So it's in this huge space. Uh, think of Federation Square, except it's named after Julius Caesar. They all march there. Um, and he's going to be presented with these honours in public. Uh, and then Caesar says to them, oh, no, no, you're giving me too many honours. Why don't you cut them back? which is potentially a bit of a slap in the face to the Senate who are presenting this to him. You can see how it might have been an attempt from Caesar's kind of PR machine to look like he's not accepting absolutely everything they give. And with all of these incidents towards the end, actually, there are at least two ways of reading them. Is Caesar being insulting or is he trying to look like he's not a, a dictator or a tyrant? All right, so the second event is... A month later, January 45 BCE, two months now, counting down before the death, a diadem is found on the head of Caesar's statue on the speaker's platform in the Roman Forum. Yeah, so this sounds like a setup for a Cluedo mystery. <laughs> the reaction to this is... It, it is like a weapon, isn't it? It's weaponising Caesar's position. Um, so the, the diadem, is a kind of Greek crown, is taken down by the tribunes of the people. Uh, Marullus and Flavus, and they're the people who are meant to represent the interests of the people themselves. All right? They're voted in by only the, the only plebs, the lower order can be tribunes of the plebs. Um, and so they are saying, look, Caesar shouldn't have these honours, he shouldn't be a king, he shouldn't have a crown. Um, and they're, they're sort of trying to protect Caesar's reputation on the face of it. They're saying Caesar doesn't need this. He, he has sufficient power, he has sufficient authority. Um, they also, at the same time, and this is in the story that the biographer Suetonius tells us, the way he tells us this, they chastise these people who start calling Caesar a rakes or a king and saying, no, 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 that's, remember, a king is a no-no in Rome. This is a, a bad thing to, to do, to put Caesar in this position. But we're also told that Caesar was very angry with them about this and they are basically thrown out of their magistracies. So he gets rid of them. And Caesar actually suspects a bit of a put-up job as well to provoke him into doing something like that and turning public opinion against him a bit. Well, this is, uh, this is what I mean by how you can read these in various ways. Mm. That on the face of it, it looks like somebody calling Caesar a king is sort of abasing themselves in front of him. But maybe they're trying to see whether he'll be okay with it. And maybe that'll look like he really is a tyrant. So... This is what Caesar apparently thinks. Uh, and, and we've got all of this sort of push and pull. It's, a, it's quite a stressful situation that you don't know what anybody's motives are in these situations. Mm. And, and people can read it differently. As I say, it's all about interpretation. One month later, uh, 15th of February, 44 BCE, we reach Lupercalia. And I, I'm going to quote Plutarch here because it's just... Depends how you want to read this. At this time, many of the noble youths and of the magistrates run up and down through the city naked and for sport and laughter, striking those they meet with shaggy thongs. That is the Lupercalia. And um, this, is, this is an important Roman tradition and it's, it's sacred. Uh, and a and normal it, Friday night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's only on the 15th of February. What's a <laughs> 
you know, so anyway, okay. okay so Caesar, speak of platform, and and this is uh, this is in Shakespeare. This this scene. Yes, but it's. Um, I went to see the Bell Shakespeare a week ago. In fact, Gillian oh. was there too, and, and some people are in the audience now. Um, the it happens off stage, which I'd forgotten. So it gets people on stage get told about it. So it's just like we get told about it in Plutarch. I'm like, I'm going to tell you about it now. Um, this is why I brought the prop. Okay, put it yeah. on. No, 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 I was going to offer it to you. <sighs> so Caesar's up there in this very public place on this magnificent rostrum, this forum, um, and Mark Antony hands him a diadem. Gee, uh, thanks. Yeah. Um, and he, no, I, no, I no. wish I didn't give you all of those gift vouchers and, <laughs> you know... No, you've got to hand it back. Made you. Three oh, times. Oh, 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 that's the first time. <laughs> All right, <laughs> so Mark Antony is trying to push it on him. The crowd is not happy. I made you console and all you gave me is this lousy laurel wreath. Yeah, okay, so go on, have oh, it. Oh, thanks. Can I put it on now? No, you, and the people aren't happy. They sort of boo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> Sorry, I should have set guys. you up more for this. <laughs> <laughs> it's not often you get invited to boo at a live show. <laughs> I think they want you to wear it. That's why they don't want to boo it away. Th third time's so a charm. Time. So third time's a charm. Yeah. Wait, wait, do I have a line here? This is really... I, I feel I should have... Caesar have a, should have a line. No, Caesar just declined it again. Okay. But, I, and the I, people applaud. I'm now. declining. As, as Plutarch puts it, the experiment having failed. And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> do you want to read the Plutarch quote? We've, we've acted it out. All right. Plutarch, Life of Caesar, 61, for those reading at home. <laughs> when Plutarch says the experiment having failed, that makes it clear that he thinks, and I think most people agree with him, that this was a setup, that Caesar's waiting to see how does the crowd react. If they all say, put it on, way, or clap, then he'll be wearing a diadem, which is pretty close to declaring yourself king. But because they don't do that, they're still holding on to this Republican constitution. They're still holding on to the fact that we don't have kings in Rome. All right, 500 years is not long enough to get rid of hating kings. Then um, it, they sort of quietly put it away and think, okay, we're, we're not going to try that again. And by the way here, folks, Plutarch says that there was applause, slight and preconcerted. I think you guys pulled that off quite well. <laughs> so that's in three short months that you've got these signs that Caesar might be warming up to being a king. People of Rome don't like that. There's also another rumour going around, and you've got to wonder who started this, that the Parthians, who are Rome's last great threat and enemy, can only be conquered by a king. So people would be asking, well, who started this rumour? Does that mean we have to make Caesar king if we want to conquer the Parthians? Mm. And as I say, it's very hard to know where these stories start and who's generating them and for what effect. And people would have had different motives. Caesar was just about to go right. and confront the Parthians, wasn't he? He was going to take his armies over there, cause a bit of a ruckus, and that has a lot to do with the timing of the Ides of March. Yeah, and that, that will be in my, when I write up my what would have happened if Caesar hadn't been murdered. Sorry. He would have gone to fight the Parthians. Awkward. All right, so, on to the plot. Who came up with the plot? How did the plot begin? It depends on your source to a certain extent, but, of course, it's put down to the three names we've, we've already mentioned, Brutus, Cassius, and Decimus, that are the primary um, architects of this plan. And they fear that if Caesar does conquer the Parthians, then he'll, he'll be declared king. There'll be no opposition anymore. Um, and he'll sort of become a new Alexander, 
the conqueror of the world and therefore the conqueror of Rome. Um, so this is kind of the moment where it has to happen. And they also take inspiration, I think, from the fact that a, a Senate meeting is called in the theatre of Pompey, who was Caesar's enemy in the civil wars, and this seems like the fates are with them. And of course, it seems like the fates are with them in the kinds of accounts we have, because there are lots of omens. There's, There's always, always lots, lots of great of omens. omens. Always yes. lots of omens. So they put the feelers out. If you're going to do something like this, you need co-conspirators. There's quite a lot of senators to choose from, but you want to keep the numbers small and manageable so that word doesn't get out to, well, Caesar or anyone else who might jeopardise it. And you also want to make sure that you've got people who are going to contribute to this be handy with the dagger. So that's maybe why you don't want Cicero in that case. Oh, you, I, poor Cicero. I went there. I went there. So there was still a decent amount of co-conspirators, though, weren't there? Well, it... Depends if, on what source if you, you add read. them all up, but yeah. yeah, around 60 is a number that's often quoted. <laughs> that's a lot of people to keep a secret, I think. You see, I, I don't go along with you, they needed to keep it down to a few people. because Out of 800 people, yeah. that's, that's a pretty yeah, good number. And, and we know... Once you add up all the sources, we know about 20 names, yeah. uh, which is, you know, a fair amount of people. They're probably the ones who bit the dust rather prominently, though. What is their plan beyond, okay, Ides of March, they've got their date, they've got their location, they've got their weapon, so in the Theatre of Pompey with the dagger. This is a Cluedo episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, they need to get Caesar when he's vulnerable. They need to make sure Mark Antony's not there. Uh, now, the, there was some talk of, or there is some talk in some sources, that Mark Antony was perhaps going to be included or asked. Because as I say, it's kind of with the benefit of hindsight, we think Antony was the firm bosom companion. But some scholars think that Antony was, you know, not always in Caesar's good books, and therefore there was the potential that he would join in. But they decided against that. And indeed, they gave um, one of the conspirators the job to take Antony away. So he was kept away from the, the space where they were going to kill Caesar. Okay, so the Ides of March comes along, um, and Caesar's gone to a fortune teller and got some sort of idea that something might beat up. He's told to beware the Ides of March. I mean, it's, told it's there beware, in not, Shakespeare. It's I was famous about to say, Shakespeare. it's not just a Shakespeare yeah. reference. It, it did Basically, happen. Basically, yes. And also... Uh, the thing which comes up in Shakespeare too, but it's there in the biographies that Caesar thinks he's overcome it because it, the, the Ides of March, is it's the 15th of March, by the way. Mm. I was going to quiz you on that, but I forgot. Um, the 15th of March comes and he says, well, I'm safe. But, of course, the, the 15th is not over. And he, he's got to get through to the end of the day before he's safe. And his wife has a bad dream. Yeah, in which she is holding on to his corpse, basically, and he's been murdered. There are all these other omens. Well, my favorite, can I read you my favourite one from Suetonius? I wrote it down here. Yeah. The herds of horses which, he had, which Caesar had dedicated to the river Rubicon when he crossed it, so that's when he declares civil war on the Senate, basically, and he had let loose without a keeper, stubbornly refused to graze and wept copiously. So this is five years later they can identify those horses and they're weeping. The horses were crying. Yeah. Sure. And, and look, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty cheap joke because the omens always sound a little bit crazy to us. But they clearly, you know, they're written down in all of the accounts we've got. 
they had some kind of meaning. They didn't just sound daft to uh, Greeks and Romans in antiquity. This was really invested with meaning. And also Caesar, by the way, was so keen to get on with things. He kept refusing to, you know, they would have the auspices taken or they would have uh, an animal corpse looked at. And none of it was, was very auspicious, but he'd just ignore it. So there's this idea that he's going against fate. He really shouldn't have gone out that day. All right, so uh, Caesar is kind of reluctant to go there on the day, doesn't he? It, it takes Decimus going to convince him to come out. Caesar, I'm your friend. You need to go there. You can't hide. There's a quote, I'm sure. Yeah, and he basically says to him... What do you say, Caesar? Will someone of your stature pay attention to the dreams of a woman and the owners of foolish men? Yeah, so using his wife against him there. Yeah, this idea that Caesar is greater than these omens. So the, in that quote, there's the idea that Caesar's quite vain and thinks that he can overcome all of these, these negative messages, I suppose, that they're meaningless for him. Okay, so Caesar does go to the Senate, uh, carried there on a litter, leaves his bodyguards at home. He's kind of asking for it in some way. He is very confident, isn't he? And uh, he gets to the theatre of Pompey, and Mark Antony doesn't go inside. No, well, Trebonius, who had, who had been with Caesar in Gaul, but as I say, has now joined the conspirators, he's tasked with leading Mark Antony aside, and we're told specifically because Mark Antony was seen as somebody dangerous if he did decide to defend Caesar, because he was so kind of big of body. So he's a big, strong guy. That's the reason they have to get him out of the way, physically powerful, we're told, in Plutarch. So, um, so I, of course, I always imagine him as Richard Burton at this point. <laughs> Quite muscly. And we should also mention that this being in the theatre of Pompey, it's not actually in the theatre, it's like in the patio of Pompey. <laughs> the patio of Pompey. The portico. <laughs> yeah, OK, so the, the theatre is only part of that complex, um, and it also has a temple at temple to a different Venus, to Venus Victrix, Venus the, the Victoress. That make, makes it sacred ground, and so sort of even more of a crime to, to kill Caesar there, I suppose. And that, that make, means that it's a space where the Senate can meet, because you think of the Senate meeting in the Senate House, and they did, but they could meet in all kinds of other places as well, as long as they were consecrated for that business. Mm. Uh, killing Caesar on consecrated ground, great move. So Caesar sits down underneath the statue of Pompey, and... It happens fairly quickly, doesn't it? Yes. It's very dramatic in the account from Plutarch. Matt actually typed out all of the account from Suetonius for me. Yes. It's... But I've decided to read you Plutarch, which I didn't have time to read out. I'll, I'll let you in on a trade secret. Control C, control V. <laughs> okay. So I, I just think that he makes it very dark. As Caesar came in, the Senate rose as a mark of respect. <laughs> Some of Bruder's followers gathered behind Caesar's official chair while others came to meet him. They pretended they were coming to support a petition of Tilius Kimber to restore his exiled brother. So that's a reason for coming close to him, to hand him something. They came with Caesar right up to the chair, joining in with Tilius' inquiries, entreaties rather. Caesar took his seat, waved the petitioners away. They responded by pleading with even greater force. So if he waves them away, will they get their chance? There's sort of a bit of drama there. Caesar began to speak angrily to one man after another. Then Tilius grabbed Caesar's toga with both hands and ripped it down from the neck, the signal for the attack to begin. 
Casca struck first with a blow by the side of the neck that was not fatal, not even very deep. It was natural enough for him to be apprehensive at the beginning of so bold and great a venture. The wound was slight enough for Caesar to be able to spin around, grasp the dagger, and hold it firm. Oh, the one thing missing from this account that I do quite like in Suetonius is that Caesar's there to, to sign petitions. Um, so he's got a stylus, and he takes the stylus and starts stabbing his attackers in the hand with it, but then he sees there are too many of them. He's also given a line. Why, this is violence! Yes. Right, Very Plut astute of him. <laughs> in Plutarch, he says, Casca, you scoundrel, what are you doing? That is a better line. And the, ass the assailant in Greek to his brother, brother, help. So that was how it began. Those who knew, as I said, those who knew nothing of the plot were bewildered and terrified. As for the conspirators, they gathered round, each brandishing a naked blade. Caesar was surrounded. Wherever he looked, he met blow after blow, with the rush of steel towards face and eyes. He was run through like some wild beast, rolling to and fro in everyone's hands. For each person there needed to begin the sacrifice and taste of the slaughter. It's really dark. That was why Brutus, too, struck a single blow to the groin. Some say that Caesar fought gamely against the others, shouting and throwing his body in every direction. But when he saw Brutus with drawn blade, he pulled his toga over his head and gave in before the attack. So that, that's the suggestion. That was the suggestion of this special relationship between Caesar and Brutus, perhaps. It, I, I just want to read one more sentence, because it is, even though I'm just reading a book to you, uh, over, uh, this is in paragraph 66 of the life of Caesar in Plutarch, if you're interested. He fell by the pedestal on which Pompey's statue stood, perhaps by chance, perhaps dragged there by the, assailant, the assassins. It was drenched in steams of blood. So that gave the impression that Pompey himself had presided over the vengeance. Now, of course, what's missing from that is the line that you're all waiting for, for um, that's in Caesar, which is et tu brute, which isn't in uh, any of our ancient sources, but in a couple of the other sources, including, including Suetonius, he says, Kaisu technon, you too child, to Brutus. So is he his child? All of the sources have some kind of suggestion towards that, or is it just a term of endearment, I guess? Mm. It's very frenzied kind of planned, but it seems chaotic. It is chaotic, and, and apparently several of the, the assassins are wounded, so they're streaming with their blood as well. So Brutus just gets a hand wound, in, yeah, they're just depending kind of on what source you read. Stabbing at whatever they can see, and mm. whatever they can see might not be Caesar, because... You know, there's 23 wounds on Caesar and apparently wounds on other people too. And uh, despite the fact that uh, this happens very quickly um, and Caesar is quite prominent, his body lays there. They, they go out in celebration almost. The Senate adjourns and Caesar's body remains on the floor in front of Pompey's statue. Yeah, which is a really sad I mean, the whole thing is, is awful. But uh, this sad idea of this man who had, until that point, been, uh, been celebrated as the, the first man in Rome, the most important man in Rome, is just left there now. So he's not paraded as some kind of token of their victory, as they see it. Um, he's not, you know, there's no damage done to him either, but he's just left there, like nobody cares. And it's several hours um, before his supporters 
come in and remove it and he's cremated. There is an autopsy report. <laughs> is that how you see it? Yes. <laughs> we get the doctor's name and everything. He signed, he signed my document, at least. <laughs> sorry, I don't um, have his name here, sorry. <laughs> um, he's called Antistius. Oh, there we go. And he says it's the second wound that killed Caesar. So we're told that first one was a bit hesitant. So Casca's brother. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess so. That's, that's most likely, isn't it? Casca he's the other. His, he's asked for his help. Um, some accounts you'll read say that it was Brutus's blow that was fatal, but that doesn't seem to add up. The with, one to the groin. Um, and with 23 wounds, I mean, who knows? But, yeah, the physician said it was the second one, and none of the others would have killed him. Yeah, you said that he's cremated in the forum. Mm. Matthew says hesitantly, waiting to be corrected. <laughs> And the people of Rome don't take it very well. They throw lots of things on the funeral pyre and burn down half the forum. Yeah, well, it's interesting to think about what it means to assassinate somebody in Rome because this is by no means the first assassination. And quite often, almost nothing happens. That person's just being got rid of. And there is a history of getting rid of of politicians who espouse the populist cause, the cause of the people. And, you know, Caesar had handed out land to the urban poor, the landless poor, and he'd done various, he'd had various policies that were in aid of them. So that, this seems to be what breaks them, I think. And, and they are going to show their anger. And you could say, you could probably argue that Caesar has given them the confidence to... Um, to rise up after he's been murdered. On the other hand, you could also say there has been violence and rioting in Rome all through the 50s and now it comes back again. Mm. We, we sort of thought we'd got to the end of a civil war and maybe we'd got this moment of peace and a very strong leader. If you want to present Caesar in a positive way, you could argue that. And now everything's up for grabs again. So Brutus and Cassius were hoping to, uh, to come out of this as swaying the public opinion and to be seen as the people who are restoring the public of Rome and taking it away from this dictatorship. Whereas the people kind of thought, no, 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 you took our Caesar from us. We were quite happy with us, Caesar. Oh, look at these rich senators who think they know what's best for us. How typical of them, I'm going to burn down half the forum. And Mark Antony really seizes on this, seizes, <laughs> seizes on this kind of crowd and makes use of it, doesn't he? He does. So, you know, we've referred to Shakespeare a couple of times. The great speech he has at Caesar's funeral is it's Shakespeare, but it is playing on the fact that Mark Antony did use this death um, and, and really appealed to the people to revenge the murder of Caesar. So this is a catalyst for, for some change in Rome, and Caesar's not the one who benefits from it, but that will happen after Caesar's death. Um, that we're going to have political change now, and it's, it's Caesar's heir who will benefit from that. Yeah, so Caesar caused this problem by writing a will, <laughs> and in that will, Mark Antony had a nasty surprise. Well, yeah, prob probably so, that uh, Caesar's main heir is Octavius, as we've mentioned, who becomes Octavian, who can now take on the name Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. Um, it gives him a lot of property, a lot of wealth, and also an incredible amount of authority at a very young age, which is quite dangerous, in my opinion. Mm. Uh, and Mark Antony is named his guardian. Yeah, so he still has a part to play in all of this, and he, along with Octavian, will spend the next two years, or will eventually, 
by 42, uh, avenge Caesar's murder and chase down the murderers and defeat them in battle, and both Brutus and Cassius kill themselves. So they will be the victors or the immediate victors out of this, but well, we don't want to go too far forward, but of course they're going to fall out. Mm. Ten years down the line, they will not be friends anymore. You just summarised about ten podcasts worth of content yeah. there. <laughs> go, go look for the details elsewhere. So uh, ultimately, Brutus and Cassius thought they were doing something good. Uh, even when it went to civil war stage, they were very proudly saying, no, look, we are the men who fought for Rome. We will even mint coins to this effect, mm. don't they? It's, a, it's quite a famous coin for coin aficionados. Yeah, so, so Brutus in particular, of course, has this history to call upon or this possibly legendary history of his name being that of a liberator, somebody who ridded Rome of a tyrant. And so there's a coin that has the two daggers either side of what's called a freedman's hat. So it's a little cap, sometimes called a Phrygian cap, which is a, a symbol of liberation, symbol of your freedom after you've been a slave. So there's this idea that they've liberated Rome from slavery that they're trying to promote by killing Caesar. It doesn't really work, but of course it doesn't really work because they don't win that war. Mm. Uh, so they don't get to tell that story. They don't get to be in charge and restore the Republic, as they would see it, restore no, this, the Senate. No, this ends the Roman Republic. Thus ends. Thus ends. Oh, there's so many moments that you could point yeah, to to yeah. say the Roman Republic ends. Some people would say it was already <laughs> over. Some people yeah. would put it much later. We, we did a whole um, series on that. Yeah, did, okay. <laughs> well, we'll, be, we'll be quiet about that. But yes, it's, if you have to put it in a timeline, you might put it here or you might put it, I don't know, around 27 BCE. But it's certainly, you know, this couple of decades that it happens. And thus ends Caesar. You've been listening to the live 100th episode of Emperors of Rome, recorded at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on the 2nd of August 2018. If you like this podcast, then give it a special 100th episode present with a review on Apple Podcasts. Other platforms are also available. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans and I am at Nightlight Guy. Thanks to everyone who's listened to and enjoyed the podcast over the past 100 episodes. Onwards to episode CC. But until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And I mean it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>